Amen. Something new and uh, something great. It's a great. The words of that are just so phenomenal. The author of that hymn is Matt Boswell. And uh, I got to know Matt. Well, I met him for the first time in Dallas when uh, Jeff and I went out for a conference a couple of years ago. Then I got to know him a little better at the Cross Conference when we took our college students last uh, December. And Matt was there leading worship, and uh, for some reason I had to go out, and for some reason he was out, and so we sat down and talked for about 35 or 40 minutes, and just a, a heart for worship and a heart for God uh, is, is just what was totally exemplified in the time I spent with him. He was a glorious guy. That's a great song. I'm, I'm glad Jeff decided to teach that to us today, and I'm sure we'll see that again. The, the words are just unbelievable as they bring us to the throne of God's grace. We come today to Malachi again, chapter 1, verses 5, uh, excuse me, verses 1 through 5. We looked at verse 1 last week, and that's all we looked at, but we'll talk about it in light of 2 through 5 today. So take your Bibles and follow along as I read these five verses. The oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel through Malachi. I have loved you, says the Lord. But you say, how have you loved us? God says, was not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord. Yet I've loved Jacob, but I've hated Esau. And I've made his mountains a desolation and appointed his inheritance for the jackals of the wilderness. Though Edom says, and Edom is Esau's descendants, though Edom says, we have been beaten down, but we will return and build up the ruins. Thus says the Lord of hosts, they may build, but I will tear down. The men will call them the wicked territory. And the people toward whom the Lord is indignant or angry forever. Your eyes will see this, and you will say, The Lord be magnified beyond the border of Israel. Malachi is going to, in these short verses, only 55 or so verses in this whole book, is going to talk to us about some issues that are prevalent and problematic among the people of God. They are issues that were prevalent and problematic in Malachi's day, but they're also issues that are prevalent in many ways and prob problematic in our day. It's amazing how things kind of go in cycles, isn't it? It's amazing how, how we see things happen over and over and over again. You're, you're studying judges in, the, in Sunday school, and you notice the cycle of the judges. You know, you have the people go into exile, they go into to, to captivity, they look to God, they seek God, God hears their voice, He forgives them, He brings them back, they live in a time of prosperity, and time of joy, and then they begin to look to themselves again and forget God again, and the whole cycle begins all over again as they go off into captivity. And, and the same thing happens many times, even in history, even within the people of God today. We see the same type thing happening. 
And so Malachi, after verse 5, as he gets into verse 6 of chapter 1, the rest of his book, he's going to deal with some problems that I think you and I will be able to identify with and see very clearly, even in the church in the 21st century. But the thing I want you to see this morning very clearly is, is that Malachi does not begin with what the people have done or have not done. Indeed, Malachi begins by talking about what God has done. He begins where it needs to begin if we're going to understand all the other issues. If we're going to understand where the people, the, the people of God have gotten to, we need to understand the power and the grace and, 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 the, and the works of God before we can come to a point of understanding why we find ourselves in the circumstances that we find ourselves in. We found out last week in looking at verse 1, the oracle of the Lord, the word of the Lord to Israel through Malachi, we found out it was a message from God to his people through a human agent, Malachi. And, and in that one little verse, we saw the, the burden that Malachi is carrying. The word oracle can also be translated burden. And we saw that Malachi is burdened for the people. He is, he is concerned for them because of the circumstances in which they have found themselves. But he's really burdened because he's bringing God's word to them. And any time a preacher, any time a messenger of God brings God's word, it ought to be with a real burden on their heart. It ought not be with a jocularity. It ought not be with a, an entertainment mentality. It ought not be coming with sort of a shallowness or a casualness. It ought to be coming with a, a burden that this is God's word that I'm delivering. This is God's word that I want the people to hear. And Malachi knew that these people were hard of hearing. Doesn't mean they needed hearing aids. Doesn't mean they couldn't hear with the, these auditory devices they have on the side of their head. It meant that they were hard of hearing in their spirit. They were hard of hearing when it came to hearing the truth of God's Word. They were off doing their own thing. And they were only concerned about themselves and not really concerned about the worship of God. And we'll see how their worship later becomes very careless. But we saw that Malachi was a courageous reformer. He came in carrying this burden knowing that it was the Word of God, but also knowing how people tend to respond to God's Word in His day and in our day. You typically don't want to hear it. But he was not only a courageous reformer, but he was a, he was a man with a great pastoral concern. He cared about these people. He, he came as a prophet, but he also came pastorally, wanting to understand what they needed to see and how they needed to respond to God came as a man of profound hope. I mean, if you look there in, in verse 5 of the passage I just read, he says, you know, but there is coming the day, the Lord says, the Lord says, your eyes will see and you will say, the Lord be magnified beyond the border of Israel. Malachi said, I know there's a day coming when we will see the glory of God across the face of the earth in ways that we did not imagine, in ways that we never dreamed of. That's so important to understand. But most of all, we see that Malachi was a man who considered himself an instrument in God's hands. Throughout this book, this short book, he's going to, to use the phrase and have a constant declaration along the lines of, Yahweh of hosts, the Lord of hosts, says. God says. God speaks. Uh, 
something like 26 times in these 55 verses, Malachi will use that phrase or something very similar to it. Because Malachi saw himself not as coming to, to, to tell them something of his opinion, not coming to tell them something that maybe he would like for them to see, but he comes to tell them, this is what God says. I want you to hear God's word. I'm merely his instrument. And so he carried the burden of the Lord. He carried the burden of God's word to the people that they might hear it. But as I said, you start out in these first five verses by seeing that Malachi doesn't begin by saying, uh, here's what you've done or here's what you haven't done. But he starts out by saying, here's what God has done. And it's a very simple statement, but it's a very profound statement. It's very simple when we hear it stated but it carries with it just such a, a large magnitude of his glory and his grace and his work that we cannot miss it as Malachi speaks it. He starts in verse 2 and he says, quoting God, says the Lord Yahweh, I have loved you. I've loved you. God says this to the people. Now the people have been brought back out of exile uh, Ezra has come in and restored the worship in the temple. Nehemiah has come in and has rebuilt the walls around the city. All things of which uh, were gifts of God and work of God through those men, Ezra, Ezra and Nehemiah, to the people. It was God's work. But the people kind of were thinking, well, we, we rebuilt the temple and Ezra did that and Nehemiah came back and with our help we built up the walls. Why do you say God has loved us? As a matter of fact, they, they rebuke that word. He said, they ask the question, Nehemiah says, but you say, how have you loved me? How have you loved us? Responding back to God. Is there any more ridiculous statement in all the Bible? I mean, can you imagine these people having been restored? And then you go all the way back to the, to the Egyptian captivity also when he delivered them through the wilderness and brought them to the promised land throughout the whole history of uh, uh, of the children of israel they have been delivered they have been they have been cared for by god god has blessed them over and over again but here they're saying you've loved us how have you loved us there's a famine in the land the the, the flocks are not producing like they ought to produce we're having an economic downturn. We're, we're in at least a recession, if not a depression. We're seeing all sorts of horrible things taking place. How have you loved us? It's almost like they're you know, putting their, eyes over, uh, their hands over their eyes and, and saying, we refuse to hear, we refuse to see. Well, we look back at those Israelites, don't we? And we say, what a foolish bunch of people. How foolish could they be? Of course God loved them. Now God goes in to, to responding to them by talking about Esau and Jacob. And, and, and Paul takes that, and I had Brother Todd read that in the Scripture reading, uh, the hearing of the Word this morning, because Paul takes this very statement, and he says, this is, this is not just true of Esau and, and, and Jacob. This is not just true of the children of Israel, but this is true of God's people today. Those who are the people of God need to understand that God has loved us. God has chosen us. God has blessed us in unbelievable ways, and we need to see that and understand that. It's easy to look at the children of Israel and say, oh man, they just blew it. But don't we blow it many times 
in the same way? They denied God's love. In reality, to, de to deny God's love is to deny God himself. To deny God's love is to deny his care, his concern, his compassion. And, and in one sense, knowing that God is love and God is a loving God, it's to deny his very existence as who he is. And so for us to say, for them to say, or, or for us to say or even act like in today, how has God loved us? Is God really there? Is evidence that there is deep sin within the hearts and the lives of the people. Because let me tell you, where sin is prevalent and sin is loved and sin is harbored and sin is, is, is sort of held on to as a right or as me doing what I want to do and what I have a right to do, when it's sin, when, when sin is present in that sort of way, God's love will always be questioned. It always will. Because you see, sin leads to doubting. Sin leads to us getting our focus off of Christ and off of His glory and off of His provision and placed on ourselves. The people knew that God had done all these things. They had the historical record. They had the, the preachers and the priests and the, all those in the temple telling them what God had done historically. But you see, they were so caught up in themselves, they were so captivated in, in their own circumstances and in their own depression and in their own recession and in their own lack of, of physical and material overabundance that, that they cried out and said, how has God loved us? You know, that's part of the reason in our own day the prosperity gospel is so popular and so wrong so popular among the people because everybody wants to say, oh, listen, if you're really walking with God, you'll have health and wealth, and, and you know, God will just bless you in every single way you can imagine, and it's always going to be material, and it's always going to be physical, and it's always going to be something that, that, you, uh, that you want. You're going to get your every want fulfilled. You see, that's the sin of self-centeredness. It's the basic sin of the fall. Back in the Garden of Eden, when, when Adam and Eve fell and, and sin entered the world through them and entered all their prosperity through them, which their prosperity is you and me, not prosperity, prosperity, offspring, descendants, sin entered into our lives. And, and the very essence of it in the Garden was they wanted to be like God. They wanted to be like God and have all knowledge and have all wisdom and, and be able to go right from wrong and, and do whatever they wanted to do. And so they said to God, we're not going to obey you as far as eating of this fruit of this particular tree that you told us not to. We're going to eat of what we want to eat of because we have a right to do it. You ever heard people declare, I, don't, I really don't care what God says. I don't care what God's word says. I have a right to do this. It's what I want to do, and I have a right to do it. That is the essence of sinfulness. That's the essence of what was taking place in Malachi's day. And so God says, I've loved you, and they respond, well, yeah, really, have you loved us? A little cynicism, a little cynic. How, how have you loved us? Show us. I don't see the crops growing. I don't see the flocks flourishing. I don't, I don't see our bank accounts full. I don't, I don't see us being... a, a, a 
protected from illness and sickness and, and problems? How have you loved us, Lord? Just tell us. So God goes back to the covenant, the covenant relationship. He says, well, do you remember that Esau was Jacob's brother? And Esau was the older by a few seconds or minutes in the birth. They were twins. And by virtue of everything in their culture, Esau should have been the preeminent one. By everything in their culture, everything in their law, everything in their tradition, Esau was born first, he was the oldest, so he should have had preeminence over the younger Jacob. But God said, as, as Paul points out in, in Romans chapter 9, you know, he says, listen, did not the twins, there was Rebecca, and she conceived twins by one man, our father Isaac. For though the twins were not yet born and had not done anything good or bad, so that God's purpose according to his choice would stand, not because of works, not because of good deeds, but because of him who calls. It was said to her, the older will serve the younger, as it is written, Jacob I love, quoting Malachi, Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. He says, listen, it was this covenant relationship that I, I made with you. And it's through that covenant that you have been blessed, not just with material things, but you have been blessed with a spiritual blessing that is unbelievable. A covenant that is, a covenant that is unconditional, a covenant, covenant that is, is, is sovereign, a covenant and a love that is intimately personal, coming through this one relationship. It's God's covenant love. It's God's covenant love and God's covenant grace that is the basis for knowing that God has loved his people. How have you loved us? Oh, you've established a covenant? Well, maybe, yeah, that's right. Then he goes on and says, but Esau's people I have basically cursed. Even though Edom, Esau's people may say, we have be we've been beaten down, we've been defeated, but we're going to return, we're going to build up the ruins, you know, we're going to come back, we're going to show you, Israel, and we're going to show God who we are, and we're going to establish ourselves. God says, really? Well, they may build, but I'll tear down again. And, and men will call them a wicked territory, and the people toward whom the Lord is angry or indignant forever. That the purpose of God, that the plan of God, that God's covenant might be seen and established and understood. I mean, they, they just quickly question God's love and show their sinfulness and show their ignorance and show their self-centeredness. Because it's not like they think it ought to be. But it's like God has established it. It's easy to look at them and say, boy, they were, they were evil people. They were foolish people. Making those kind of claims against God Almighty. Doubting God's love. Saying to God when he says, I've loved you, how have you loved us? But let's be honest, 
let's just get real gut level honest. Are they any different than we are? Things aren't going right. Sickness hits. Financial calamity hits. We've been walking with Christ. We name, claim the name of Christ. We know that by His grace we've been saved and we've been set apart for His glory. And, and all things are going well. And, and as long as things are going well, we just revel in the love of God. We thank God for His love. We thank God for His protection. We thank God for all He's done and all He's doing. But when something goes wrong, How have you loved us? There was one particular time in my life, and I'm, I'm not proud of this. I'm, I'm very ashamed of this. And I won't give you all the gory details. They're not that gory, but I won't give you all the details. There was a time when I thought everything was going perfect. And I thought, boy, doesn't God love me? Really what I thought was, aren't I doing a great job for God? Everything was going right. It was going great. Uh, you know, church was growing. The, uh, the people were coming. New members were joining every week, and everything was going great. And then one day, something happened, and the bottom just kind of fell out. And you know what my first thought was? God, why do you not love me anymore? You know, I even had the audacity to vocalize that one time, one time only. Well, what has he done for me? hope that doesn't destroy your trust in your pastor that he would have that kind of... I repented of it very quickly, I want you to know. But I was just like the Israelites of Malachi's day. When things were great, God was good. When things didn't go exactly like I thought they should or like I wanted them to, God, why have you forgotten me? Why have you deserted me? Why have you left me alone? Why have you turned your back on me? Lord, and God says, but I love you. And I, how have you loved me? I, I'm not having things like I want them to be any longer. We're, we're guilty just like he is. You see, our blessings and our knowledge of God's love is not wrapped up in circumstances. You need to understand that. I need to understand that. The fact that God loves us is not wrapped up in whether or not we have more money in the bank than we can spend or whether we have nice cars or nice houses or, or all of our, our children are doing everything perfect and we just see a, a perfect obedience of our children and, and as children we say our parents is just being so sweet and nice to us. That's not what determines God's love. God's love is determined in the covenant, the new covenant. The covenant that was sealed on the cross. The covenant that says, you are my people. The covenant where Jesus said, we looked at in John so in depth as we went through that book. You know, no one will ever be able to snatch you out of our hands. You are mine. I'm protecting you. I'm guarding you. You belong to me. And I will never let you be destroyed, ultimately. Now, there are times when God has to use the, the rod... There are times when, as the writer of Hebrews says, those whom God loves, he disciplines. And that discipline is to drive us back to him. That discipline is to let us see his grace again and see his glory. But, but many times we see that not as discipline, but as a lack of love. 
I'm sure some of your children, when you have to discipline them, they say, oh, you just don't love me. They don't see that you really do love them. That's why you discipline them. That's why you do what you do to show them the error of their ways. And, and God treats us as his children because his children we are. And he disciplines us sometimes. But, but, but God shows his love to us in such a magnificent way in the new covenant, just as he did to Israel in the old covenant. I mean, listen to what some of the, the, the testament of the scripture. I mean, we know John 3.16, don't we? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him will have life, will never perish, but have eternal life. I mean, we hear that verse, we know that verse, and we want to just throw it out kind of as a, a general, casual, oh well, that's, that's the way it is. But in reality, you have to see the covenant love that, that, that is being talked about in John 3.16. Those who believe are in me and are protected, and I love them with a special, unique love, and always will. Or Paul writing to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, when he says, listen, this is the truth. God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against, him, against them, and he has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Reconciliation, love. And he made him who knew no sin to be sent on our behalf so that we might become the very righteousness of God in him. When we are in Christ, we experience that love by having his righteousness accounted to us, applied to our lives, the very righteousness of Christ. Or John, when he wrote his letter of 1 John, in, in, in this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. That is, you know, we, we walk around like, oh, we just love God all the time. You know, we've loved God from birth. No, you haven't. Not according to Scripture. Because of your sin, you were rebels, and you had to come in repentance, and you had to come in faith. But, but once you have come, you recognize that it was him who loved us first so that we might love him. It's not that we loved him, John says. It's that he loved us. Thanks be to God for that. Just like he loved Jacob. Just like he loved with a covenant love. Romans 5.8 says, but God demonstrates his love toward us. Paul's writing to believers there. He demonstrates his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Or in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 5 through 7, even when we were dead in our transgressions, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the ages to come we might show the surpassing riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Now I especially love that last statement that Paul makes there in verse 7 of Ephesians chapter 2. Why did God save us? Why did God save Israel? Why did God have a covenant with Israel? Why does God have a covenant with believers today? Well, he says he does it so that, a purpose clause, a, a reason clause there, so that in the ages to come, in the times to come, we might show the surpassing riches of his grace 
in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. He said, listen, your purpose in life, if you have been saved by the grace of God, if you have been redeemed and reconciled to God through Jesus Christ, He has done this so that you might be to the praise of His glory. Why were the Israelites in covenant relationship? Through Jacob? Well, in verse 5 there it says, And your eyes will see this, and you will say, The Lord be magnified beyond the border of Israel. Wait a minute, I, I thought in the old covenant God was just to be glorified among Israel. I thought they were his chosen people, and they were, and, and they were just to kind of enjoy the fellowship with God, and they were kind of keep it within, and they were just kind of say, we are chosen, you are not, and they were to go. Not ever was that to be the case. Never. God envisioned and called Israel to be a missionary people even back in the Old Covenant. They were to spread the word, the truth of God throughout the whole world. They were, they were not to hold it to themselves. They were to see the glory of God, the majesty of God magnified beyond the border of Israel throughout the, all the world. That was their purpose. That is our purpose. That's why we as Christians can never be content to just say, hey, I've been saved. God saved me. <laughs> Hallelujah. I'm going to get with a bunch of other saved people, and we're just going to enjoy that till he comes again. Can't do that. We're, we're called beyond that. We're called to see beyond the borders of the nation. We're called to see beyond the, the boundaries of these church walls. We're called to magnify and glorify and exhibit and demonstrate and prove, if you will, the glory of God throughout all the earth, through the ages that we might show his surpassing riches. He's not talking about riches that you can put in your pocket. He's not talking about riches that you have to report to the IRS by April 15th every year. He's not talking about riches that will make you prideful. He's not talking about riches that others will look at you and be envious of you and say, oh man, I wish I had what they have. He's not talking about riches that will make life easy and comfortable and never have a problem. He's not talking about riches like we talk about. Like, like we focus on, like we concentrate on. Like we think if we don't have them, then God really must not love us as much as he loves somebody else. Folks, even in the 21st century, even after the cross, the resurrection, the ascension, the sending of his Holy Spirit, even after all the glorious truths that have taken place in establishing the new covenant with his people, we can still be guilty of what we would call Secular thinking, especially when it comes to things, possessions, wealth, physical blessings. When we were in Birmingham a few weeks ago, we uh, visited a friend of mine's church pastor who pastors Hunter Street Baptist Church. And one of the things they had that morning was a video testimony. 
they were talking about being the church and, and, and being what God has called us to be. And they, they had this video testimony of a lady who really wanted to be there to share it in person, but she couldn't because she was in her hospice bed and she was very close to leaving this world. And I, I can't quote to you all that she said. I was very moved by what she said because she said, you know, I'm, I'm riddled with cancer. And, and I just want you to know as my church family that God loves me so much that he's entrusted me with this to, to live it out before you and, and he's, he's using this to sanctify me and he's using this to show me that I am not sufficient in myself. I can't handle life myself. I'm having to trust completely in him. And then she said, you know, I, I may or may not be able to get up out of this bed. I'm asking God to raise me up so I can come back and fellowship with my church family again. But, but he may not do that. But I want you to know if he doesn't do that, then I'm in a win-win situation. If he does raise me up, I'll be back. That's good. But if he doesn't, I'll be with him. Because he has loved me with a covenant love. Because he has loved me in such a way that even in the midst of, of my body being racked with cancer, I know that love, not because I'm healthy and wealthy, but because his presence is with me. His kindness, his surpassing riches are filling my life. Malachi says, I want you to understand something as I'm about to hit on some issues like worship and giving and marriage and family. As I'm about to show you, he says, where you're wrong. I want you to see first and foremost what God has done. He has loved you. And he has loved you, and that love ought to be our motivation for everything in the Christian life. Our, our motivation for getting up in the morning and sharing the gospel with a friend or a neighbor or a loved one, our motivation for going to work, our motivation for coming to church, our motivation for, for eating our meals ought to be motivated out of a response to the love that God has shown us. be our greatest motivation and we ought to be able to say with the prophet Habakkuk that if the if the crops fail and the flocks die off and we don't have anything to eat or anything to to put on our for clothing we have any shelter over our head even though everything like that fails I will still worship I will still rejoice I will still glory in the God of my salvation. Why? Because I don't like having stuff to eat? No. Because I like being sick with a disease? No. You don't have to like it. But because I know that in the midst of that, God's covenant love through Jesus Christ in the power of his Holy Spirit is what sustains me, and what carries me and what protects me. And if I die, 
of starvation or disease or an accident or whatever. I can say with the Apostle Paul, for me to live is Christ. For me to live is Christ. I, I want to glorify Him. I want to honor Him. I want to exalt Him. That's what it means to live is Christ. But to die? Because of the covenant relationship that I have with Him, to die is gain. Paul says, oh, I know I, if I live on, I can be a benefit to you, I can minister to you, and, and I hope I can do that. But if I don't, I'm in a covenant relationship with a loving God who is a covenant-keeping God, who is a precious God, who loves me, and it's not determined by circumstances. It's determined by who he is and what he's done. I'm sure Malachi must have really been put out at that point. Here they are with careless worship. Here they are mistreating the things God's called them to. And when they says God loves you, they say, how does he love me? How does he love this? Now, if I'd been Malachi, I would have probably just said, a pox on all your household. I'm going somewhere where people will listen to me. But he didn't because he had a pastor's heart and he had a message from God. He had a burden to deliver that message. And I have a burden for us to hear for these next weeks what Malachi says, not to, not to Israel about 2,500 years ago, but to Grace Baptist Church and to the church at large in 2014. Let me ask you this this morning. I mean, this is a, this is a serious question. When I say to you, and I'm saying it to you right now, God has loved you. I don't mean he's loved you in the past, now he's stopped. When, I, when Malachi says, God has loved you. He's talking about a continue, uh, an action that began in the past, but is continuing right on now and always will continue. He's talking about something that never stops. God has loved you with that kind of love. What is your first thought? Thank you, Lord, for loving me. Thank you, Lord, for calling me. Thank you, Lord, for showing me my sin, and opening my eyes to the Savior. Thank you, Lord, for establishing a covenant relationship with me. Or is it, huh, how has God loved me? What's your response to that? God has loved you. Well, that's the question you've got to ask. That's the response you've got to think about. Because it will determine your worship. It will determine your marriage. It will determine your family. It will determine your stewardship. And it will determine how you show the glory of God 
which you're called to show in Somerset and beyond. Let's pray.